Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. We have a fun uh, journey to take you on in the next couple of episodes. Um, probably going to be a two-parter, but who knows? We, we never know. We don't know what the future is going to bring. But this is, this is one that, uh, on the surface of things, you might think, oh, well, it, it, oil and water, how, uh, how interesting could that get? But it gets pretty interesting because, uh, you know, we're going to get into divination. We're going to get into the idea of pouring storm oil into the sea to calm uh, turbulent waters. There's a lot to talk about here. But at the, the very base level, Oil and water, two things that famously don't mix. Uh, you've probably observed varying levels of the interaction before. Perhaps you've just seen like a film of oil on the surface of a puddle, or you've observed the separation of cooking oil combined with another liquid in a mixing bowl. It instantly catches the eye. I'm not going to say it necessarily always captures the human imagination, um, but there is something about it that you can't help but notice. Did you ever have one of those toys when you were a kid where there is, um, I actually don't know what liquids they use in these, but presumably it's water and then some kind of lipid-based colored liquid, maybe like red or blue that bubbles through the water and maybe uh, spins a little uh, pinwheel or something? Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I do remember these. They're really fun for a brief period of time, and then they go into the, the junk drawer. Well, maybe I'm just easily amused. I remember uh, turning mine over and over a, a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, it's memorable. I'm not saying it's forgotten, in the, but it certainly ends up in the toy chest. I bet that one's really fun when it breaks. Cool. <laughs> uh, that'd be a great origin story for like a, a, a long dormant virus or something. The, <laughs> you know, a dangerous microorganism encased within the, the, the item of power. 
Mm, what strange oil did they end up using? Yeah. Well, it's not just children. It's not just the inner child as well. Uh, humans have found interactions of oil and water intriguing since ancient times. And yeah, indeed, it does trace back into the realm of ancient magic and divination. Uh, you know, various tales, and we'll touch on some of these of like uh, ancient kings and so forth, seeking out uh, the word and the wisdom of diviners who use various methods to sort of reach into the murky future and make sense of the, uh, the strange shapes there. Now, divination is, of course, the attempt to seek guidance concerning the future and decisions that impact future events. As we've discussed in the show before, you can certainly think of it as, a, as the right of, of supernatural guidance, which it is. But uh, especially in the ancient context, too, we might think of it as well as a means of sort of generating a randomized direction that is weighted by belief or superstition. You know, if presented with two choices, all things being equal, you know, flip a coin. But not a trivial coin, not a completely trivial coin, because this coin is weighted by supernatural belief. But then also you keep it from being just, you know, completely random because it also entails an art of interpretation. It's not just a coin anyone can flip and anyone can read. You need a specialist who's going to read the the coin, read whatever it is you're reading, and perhaps too, you know, read the client, read the patron, uh, and or the, uh, you know, the, the larger events going on. So, uh, so yeah, there's a, there's an art to divination as well. Though it's often interesting when you think about, a a lot of the stories of, uh, what the interpreter does. I mean, there are some cases where they get real specific about things, but most of the time it seems like they are adding in ambiguity that, um, it makes it harder to falsify the prediction. Yeah, sort of the, the, you know, there's obviously an art to the cold read and, you know, there's a a level of manipulation to carrying it out as well. And also there's a lot of self-preservation, especially when you're dealing with, um, you know, dark and gloomy kings in ancient times. Uh, If you want to be a diviner that that lives a, a long life or even a reasonably long life, you do have to read the room and figure out exactly what kind of of message you're going to relay to the ruler. Look, I only said there would be a decisive victory. I didn't say which side would get it. (laughs) So there are various methods of divination that have been used over the years. We talked about about many on the show before in the past, and uh, we're going to touch on several different ones here. But specifically concerning oil and water divination, um, this is what the, the ancient Greeks would come to call lacanomancy, the use of oil poured into a basin of water to tell the future. Yeah, so the name lacanomancy comes from the Greek uh, lacane, meaning bowl. Uh, so this is lacanomancy, meaning bowl divination. And in the literature, yeah, it seems most often to refer to omens in mixtures of oil or water, either in a bowl or in a cup. And could apparently be done either way, maybe by, uh, I think, more often by pouring oil into water, but maybe also by uh, pouring water into oil. Though there are some other definitions for this word that seem to overlap with the concept of hydromancy, meaning divination through water. And since the, the name only means bowl, like the name doesn't mean oil, I guess it could also involve these other things like you have a bowl of water and you drop gems in it and see what they do to get your omen. Or you drop uh, gold or silver coins in or you like move, you know, move the water around and see which way the ripples go. There are a number of ways of doing this, but the oil and water one seems to have been uh, prominent in the ancient Near East. 
Yeah, yeah. This this lines up with what I was reading as well. I was looking at a book from 1981 titled um, Oracles and Divination. And in particular, there's a section in it by O.R. Gurney uh, that says, yes, these, these uh, practices, they tended to involve a bowl or a basin of some sort. And yes, one would either pour oil into water or water into oil. Uh, and the oil would cause various shapes on the surface of the water. And these would be used through the uh, the diviner's art or the, or the baru's art, I believe baru was the term in, um, in like ancient Babylon, to predict the future. Um, there was also a variation called uh, alloromancy, which used flour instead of oil. So, you know, take heart. If you're out of oil and you have some flour on hand, you can also uh, go with that method. <laughs> Make you the loosest of doughs. <laughs> now, Gurney also men, uh, mentions that there now are slash were, I'm not sure if this is like the current count. This is, again, a text from 81. Um, the six known surviving tablets uh, from um, ancient Mesopotamia dealing with oil omens. And uh, the author includes uh, a couple of examples here that I wanted to read. So these would be, you know, different um uh, nuggets of wisdom to help you, the, um, uh, the diviner, interpret what's happening in the bowl. Quote, if from the middle of the oil two drops come out, one big, the other small, the man's wife will bear a son. For a sick man, he will recover. And then the next one here concerns the use of flour instead of oil. If the flour in the east takes the shape of a lion's face, the man is in the grip of a ghost of one who lies in the open country. The sun will consign it, the ghost, to the wind, and he will get well. Ooh, wow, that's creepy. So, wait, flower forms a lion's face. Does that mean a ghost of one who lies in the open country? Does that mean a ghost of someone who, like, didn't receive a proper burial? Would that be? That was what uh, it made me think of. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not certain, and the author doesn't go into detail on this. But, yeah, it made me think of, um, of other superstitions we've discussed from other traditions involving the unburied or the improperly buried dead. This was a subject often of great concern in the literature and folklore of the ancient world. That like people like not getting a proper burial was really something you didn't want. Yeah. Now another form of divination that he mentions is labanomancy, which is divination by smoke from throwing cedar shavings on an incense burner. And this would you know be kind of similar. Like you you throw the the wood shavings on there, smoke billows up, and however the smoke is moving, what shapes it seems to be forming, that is the basis of your vision of the future. Mm. Now he writes that the use of entrails in uh, you know a, a sacrificed animal would become more popular, but oil, flour, and smoke-based divination would remain a cheaper option. Uh, but also still one that would be invoked and used by various uh, important uh, individuals, including kings, such as when uh, Kassite king Agum II, uh, he says, prayed to the god Shamash by oil before setting out on a quest to reclaim stolen statues of Marduk and Sarpanitum. It's interesting that you mentioned lacanomancy as a cheaper alternative to uh reading omens in the entrails of sacrificed animals. I, I came across that exact same claim in some other sources. I don't know if they're citing from a common source that uh, that says that. But yeah, that is interesting, obviously. So I guess the, the benefit of reading the entrails of a sacrificed animal is you're almost like, you know, you're paying for the really high price ticket for your mm -hmm. uh, your message from the gods. Like you're taking a good animal, getting it sacrificed, I, I suppose. 
I suppose, uh, at the altar of the God you're asking for the answer from, and then its entrails will tell you something. Uh, and the budget option, yeah, is just a little bit of olive oil and some water or some flour or something like that. Yeah, but uh, and I'm just I'm just guessing here, but I mean, may- maybe that's not always available. Maybe sometimes the old ways are, are thought the best, or maybe sometimes you have a situation where even a king is getting a second or third opinion on a matter. And it's like, well, okay, uh, what what do the Lacanomancers have to say about this? Uh, mm. Maybe they'll give me the answer that I, I want to hear. Mm-hmm. Now, the author here, uh, Gurney, um, goes on and mentions that um, there's also a, a form of Lacanomancy that was used by the Hittites that involved a basin of uh, or a tub filled with water, certainly. But instead of adding oil or flour, you would add what might be a snake or possibly an eel. And its movements in the enclosed space of the tank would foretell the future. Um, and it does not, in this case, sound like the animal was sacrificed. Uh, it's just about, you know, put the animal in there, uh, watch it swim around. How does it behave? Its movements uh, are going to reveal what the future holds for us. Mm-hmm. Now, another source I was uh, looking at concerning this topic uh, appears in The Influence of Surface Films on Interfacial Flow Dynamics from 1997 by Sean Patrick McKenna. Um, And this author writes that lacanomancy is, of course, one of the forms of divination practiced during the 18th century BCE in the Hammurabi-ruled Old Babylonian Empire and points out, yeah, there's several tablets of the time period unearthed in the 19th and 20th centuries that list examples of lacanomancy and, you know, guides for interpreting uh, what's going on in the water. Um, This author also shares some examples translated from these tablets. Uh, A few of these include the following. If the oil sinks, then rises and spreads round the water for the campaign unfavorable consequences, for the sick divine punishment. If the oil splits in two for the campaign, both camps should march together. For the sick, death. If a drop emerges in the east and remains stationary, for the campaign, booty. For the sick, recovery. If two drops emerge, one large, one small, a male child will be born. For the sick, recovery. If the oil fills the bowl, for the sick, death. For the campaign, defeat for the leader. This last one actually raises questions for me because the question is, if the oil fills the bowl, uh, knowing what we know about the physics of oil and water today, I mean, uh, I think what will pretty much always happen is that over time, any oil in the water will spread out as far as it can. And so it will pretty much always spread to fill the surface of water in a bowl uh, so, but it, but it takes time for it to do that. So maybe you got to put a time limit on it. Otherwise it's always going to be death or defeat for the leader. I, I would think. Yeah. I think there has to be uh, an immediacy to this. And, yeah. and obviously if you, especially if you don't have a steady hand, all of your, um, divinations can't be, um, you know, death for the sick and defeat for the, the, uh, the leader of an army. Yeah. That's going to be bad for business. Um, I think, <laughs> But it's interesting to see the pairings of the different uh, interpretations with like the, the two different kinds of battles, the battle for health within the body and the battle, you know, for the, in the military campaign going on for the king. Uh, so some of these pairings make sense to me, like uh, unfavorable consequences for the military campaign with divine punishment for the sick, uh, death and defeat, death and defeat, uh, Booty and recovery, that pairing makes sense. The one I was confused about is if the oil splits in two, that means for the sick, death, for the campaign, both camps should march together. 
Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what to make of that either. Yeah. Though I like that because that's not just stating an outcome, that's giving advice. Yeah. Now, obviously, another issue that all this raises is, you know, what what kinds of oil are you using? Indeed, what kinds of water? Um, you know, there could conceivably be differences in uh, in in, uh, in the reaction that takes place. Well, um, one source I looked at, this is from D. Tabor. This is from 1980. Babylonian lacanomancy, an ancient text on the spreading of oil on water. And in that, the author suggests that the water here is likely rainwater and the oil is some manner of vegetable oil. Um, I found that interesting, like the rainwater especially, because mm-hmm. on one hand, okay, I guess this is going to be how you're going to obtain the purest water that is also free of any oils that might, uh, you know, otherwise contaminate it. And then on the other hand, there is something kind of supernatural to it as well. Like this is the water that came from the sky, from the Mm -hmm. realm of the gods. And therefore, I can imagine that playing a role in all of this as well. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Now, another interesting thing that that came up in uh, one of these sources is uh, they pointed this out, Joe, that apparently in in the, the, uh, the Old Testament, in Genesis 44, 5, there is a reference to lacanomancy. Uh, there's a there's a, a bit that goes, Is not this it in which my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth? Ye have done evil in so doing. So this is a very interesting case. I think this is not necessarily a reference to lacanomancy, though that is a good candidate for what it is referring to. It is definitely referring to a form of divination, which uh, means I think maybe this is a good time for a digression on references to divination in the Bible. Uh, And here I have to apologize because I got seriously overzealous in (laughs) pursuing this digression, uh, which is only lightly related to the topic to begin with. So please bear with me. But I think it's an interesting subject. Um, So there are actually a lot of references to divination in the Bible. Uh, The Hebrew Bible or what Christians would call the Old Testament, contains references to a bunch of different methods of divination. Uh, First of all, there is actually a divination method officially sanctioned by the Torah and by the priest class uh, in the Bible, which is known as the Urim and Thummim, which uh, seems to have been some other kind of 
object, it's like a pair of objects worn on the ceremonial breastplate of the high priest. Uh, And while the exact form of these objects and the procedure for using them is not certain, it seems they would essentially be used for, for casting lots of some kind by the high priest in order to receive answers from God. Possibly answers to yes or no questions about what would happen in the future, like will we be successful in battle uh, and so forth, or uh, answers to questions about the guilt or innocence of an alleged sinner. Sometimes they're represented as like gems that flash with a divine light in order to project messages. I think there were some interpretations in the later rabbinical literature like this, but I think I think that's all sort of like uh, later writers speculating on what these original passages in the scriptures meant. Now, the Urim and Thummim here, um, if I'm correct on this, this is this kind of often depicted as kind of a multicolored, like you said, crystal plate that is worn um, from the neck. And I remember as a child, I would experience a certain amount of excitement and, uh, and, and maybe a little bit of confusion because at the time I would have my Star Wars books on one hand. Mm-hmm. And then I would have, you know, some of these illustrated like Old Testament stories books on the other. Mm-hmm. And these looked lo- kind of these made me think of the chest plate of Darth Vader. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, the chest plate of Darth Vader, like it's got all the little tic tacs and stuff on it. Mm-hmm. Red lights and all. And uh, oftentimes these illustrations, you see some sort of like red gems in there as well. Yeah. So I think what it does, what is clear is that these objects are linked to the breastplate of the high priest in some way. Like it said that maybe they are put in or put on the breastplate, but it's not exactly clear what they are. Hmm. But what is clear is that they are somehow used in a in an officially inbounds divination process. This is what uh, the followers of the God of Israel were supposed to use for divination purposes if they needed to. But the Hebrew Bible also contains numerous references to other forms of divination, such as necromancy. This is a, apparently a big concern in the era of the Mosaic Law. Uh, And despite its modern interpretation as a kind of evil sorcery used for, like, calling up armies of undead skeleton soldiers and Mm -hmm. zombie swarms to to go, uh, you know, get your paladins, originally necromancy meant communication with the dead for the purpose of divination, not raising zombie soldiers. Now, to be clear, even in, like, the modern Dungeons & Dragons usage of necromancy, yes, there's a lot of calling up the dead and using all sorts of, you know, weird spectral hands and so forth. There is still a little bit of talking to the dead, though. They do. They they, they keep it real a little bit there. And we see a bit of that in the the recent Dungeons & Dragons movie. There's a whole scene of, uh, of speaking with the dead, trying to gain wisdom from them. Oh, yeah. It's played mostly for comedy, I recall. Yeah. Like, they have a fixed number of questions they can ask and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what necromancy means in this context, though. It's not, yeah, it's not the the zombie soldiers. It's the talking to the dead for the purposes of gaining hidden information or knowing the past or knowing the future. Anyway, in the Mosaic Law, there are general prohibitions against divination and wizardry and magic of all forms. Uh, but one of the forms of divination that is specifically called out in these verses is necromancy. Also, there is a very famous story in the Bible about a consultation with a dead prophet. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 28, where Saul, the king of Israel, famously, he goes to a village called Endor to meet with a wise woman or a witch who can speak to the dead. 
And this is significant in the story because Saul has condemned witchcraft and has previously banished all the wizards and fortune tellers from Israel. But then he's facing a military conflict with uh, with another nation, with the Philistines, and he wants to know what he should do. And apparently he you know, he tries to get an answer from the sanctioned methods of, of information. Uh, he, he tries to consult the Urim and Thummim. Uh, he tries to have a dream from God or get some kind of direct revelation. And nothing ends up with no guidance, has no idea what to do from any of the official channels. So he goes rogue. He violates his own edict. He puts on a disguise and seeks out a necromancer to speak to the dead prophet Samuel. He wants to get Samuel's advice on on what he should do, and th- this does not go well. So he does go to the woman in disguise. Uh, she figures out it's Saul, by the way. She's like, oh, wait a minute. You said we're not allowed to do this. And he's like, oh, no, don't worry about it. I need you to, to talk to Samuel. Uh, so she raises Samuel from the grave. I think she can see him, but Saul can't. And he's trying to talk with him. And Samuel just does not help. He seems to be kind of irritated for being woken up from the sleep of death. And then he condemns Saul for his treachery. And then uh, Samuel tells him that his army is going to be defeated and he will lose his kingship. And Samuel is right. The army is defeated and Saul falls on his own sword and dies. And the story seems to at least in part emphasize how you really shouldn't go off trail on divination methods. Mm, yeah, stick to the to to the, uh, the the legal methods. Don't go into illegal divination. By the way, if you've never seen it, everyone should look up William Blake's painting of uh, Saul and the spirit of Samuel and the Witch of Endor. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, all of Blake's... Uh... Uh, illustrations, those hand-colored illustrations are always so great. This one's no exception. By the way, The Witch of Endor would also come to play a part in the 1985 film The Battle for Endor. Uh, uh, Weird House Cinema listeners may remember. No real connection to the uh, biblical account, other than other that we're dealing with a moon of Endor and there is a witch on it. <laughs> you were also not supposed to divine the future with the help of Wilford Brimley. <laughs> But anyway, so that's a story from the Bible from after the delivery of the Mosaic Law, which contains all of these prohibitions against divination in general, uh, presumably with the exception of the Urim and Thummim uh, and the prohibitions against uh, necromancy in particular. But there are also interesting references to divination from before the law uh, when it seems to have different connotations. So one of these uh, that occurs here is the example you raised earlier. This is where we're coming back to Lacanomancy. This is the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, uh, which is a long and complicated story. So I'll try to do the very condensed and simplified version. Joseph is one of the 12 sons of the biblical patriarch Jacob. And Jacob in the story shows favoritism toward him over his other brothers, even buying him a splendid coat of many colors. Uh, They made a musical about it. Yes, yeah, classic story. But his brothers, who are less favored by their father, become very jealous. So uh, one day they conspire, they beat him up, uh, they trap him in a well, and they sell him into slavery, where he, he ends up being transported to Egypt. But they take Joseph's coat to their father, covered in the blood of a goat, and convince him that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Again, classic children's story. I remember <laughs> reading it alongside my Star Wars uh, as a child. But in Egypt, uh, Joseph does pretty well. He manages to rise from lowly servitude, and at one point he's imprisoned, uh, and he manages to rise out of that to the rank of the Pharaoh's most senior lieutenant. He's like the number two in Egypt. 
And the way he does this is by showing a talent for divination. He is able to interpret the omens of the future in dreams. And by correctly analyzing Pharaoh's dreams, he brings great prosperity to Egypt at a time of famine for all the surrounding nations. Uh, And actually, since it matters to my interpretation of the story in a minute, uh, the specific way this works is that the Pharaoh dreams of seven fat cows that are like eaten, they're like swallowed up by seven lean cows and seven rotten stalks of grain that uh, consume seven good stalks of grain. And Joseph realizes that this means there are going to be seven years of good crops followed by seven years of famine. And so to anticipate the famine, the Egyptians must ration their good crops and store up extra grain during the years of abundance. Joseph's prediction or his uh, interpretation of the dream comes true. Uh, And so later, suffering from famine, like all of the surrounding nations are, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, whom they do not recognize. They don't know it's him. And then uh, they have several interactions, actually. But in in the last one, uh, in secret, Joseph hides his silver cup in the grain bag carried by his youngest brother, Benjamin. He then uh, arranges to have his youngest brother caught quote, stealing the cup. Again, he actually mm-hmm. he actually planted it on him uh, and then demands Benjamin be given to him as a slave as punishment. And instead, their older brother Judah asks that he be made a slave in Benjamin's place. And this causes Joseph to break down in tears. He reveals his identity. He forgives his brothers and the family is reunited and allowed to uh, relocate to a fertile part of Egypt. But it is the part of the story about the silver cup that relates to divination. So when Joseph's steward finds the silver cup hidden in Benjamin's sack, he says, uh, just as Joseph commands him to, he says, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. Now, of course, it doesn't say exactly what kind of divination he does in the cup. So it could be a form of hydromancy where you would, you know, put water in the cup or some liquid and drop coins or gems or other objects into the water and see what they do. It could be maybe used for a form of scrying since it's silver. Scrying is uh, reading the future in reflections and a shiny surface, such as a silver cup. Uh, Often a crystal ball is used for scrying. Mm. But based on a lot of the commentaries I found, a good candidate for what is being described here is lecanomancy, uh, where he would be, you know, dropping oil into water or doing one of the other things we've been talking about. But in any case, I, I think this passage is interesting because I think the staging of the theft of the silver cup used for divination is supposed to be interpreted as more profound than like mere burglary of an expensive cup. This is the cup in which Joseph receives omens about the future. And if you remember the earlier part of the story, correctly interpreting omens about the future is how Joseph rose to his position of prominence in the first place. It was the dream interpretations, you know, the the fadaline cows and so forth. And it's also how Egypt is currently in a good position with uh, this grain surplus during years of famine. So in a way, I I think with that gloss, it makes sense to wonder if 
stealing Joseph's divination cup in the story is kind of an espionage caper. It would be like stealing the codes to the nuclear arsenal in a modern spy thriller. This is a piece of supernatural technology that helps give Egypt its strategic advantage over other nations. Mm, that's fascinating. So I'm, I'm a little uh, out of practice with this particular Bible story, but uh, Joseph frames one of his brothers for stealing it. But then he undoes it. Yeah, he, he undoes it. it. When another brother, his youngest brother, yeah. His youngest brother is then fingered for the crime and he's like, oh, I didn't want to enslave him. No, I just no. Want to enslave. He wanted he, to enslave he, them both? No, no, no. <laughs> no, he didn't want to enslave any of them, I think. I think he wanted to test them. Sort of. mm. It's one of those kind of stories, I think. Okay. So he plants that. Yeah, he frames his youngest brother who he loves for the crime. Then he says, I'm going to make him a slave. And then because the older brother is like, no, 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 take me instead. Then I think that that softens his heart and he forgives his brothers for what they did to him. Complicated family dynamic any way you cut it. Yes. But to your point, yeah, this is not just any cup or any silver cup. This is an, is, this is a, an artifact um, of the art of divination uh, that Joseph practices. So this is, uh, this is vital. This, is, this has strategic importance for the, the Egyptians. Yes, and in this specific story, it is divination in particular that has made Egypt prosperous. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. And so anyway, thinking about the idea of uh, dropping oil and water in, in a cup or a basin uh, to receive messages from, from the heavens or from the gods... You know, while even mundane objects were often used for divination in the ancient world, it seems clear to me why the behavior of oil on water could inspire a kind of oracular fascination. Like there's that sense of strangeness and, and wonder about it that actually I, I found to be captured quite well in a passage in a letter written by Benjamin Franklin in the year 1773. Uh, we're going to get more into Benjamin Franklin, I think, in the next part in this series. But I wanted to read this passage because it articulates the kind of amazing weirdness here when you really pay attention to it. So Franklin's writing to somebody named uh, William Brownrigg, again, November 1773, and he says, In these experiments, one circumstance struck me with particular surprise. There was the sudden, wide, and forcible spreading of a drop of oil on the face of the water, which I do not know that anybody has hitherto considered. 
If a drop of oil is put on a polished marble table or on a looking glass that lies horizontally, the drop remains in place, spreading very little. But when put on water, it spreads instantly many feet around, becoming so thin as to produce the prismatic colors for a considerable space, and beyond them, so much thinner as to be invisible, except in its effect of smoothing the waves. Hmm. Now, uh, as I said, we'll come back to Benjamin Franklin in the next part of the series. But uh, while I don't know if he was the first person to uh, notice the way that oil spreads over the water, I actually somewhat doubt that. He definitely was not the first person to notice these other strange properties, like the uh, prismatic colors that tend to shine out from oil spreading over a pool of water. And he was certainly not the first person to notice the apparent ability of oil to somehow soothe the chop of threatening waters. Yeah, and this was the thing that that drew us into this topic uh, initially, because I know, um, for my part anyway, I don't think I'd I'd come across this before, this idea of oil being used to calm storm waters, uh, because, uh, I mean, it just sounds so completely magical. And it will continue to, to sound completely magical while also having... A, a basis in fact, in science, to at least a limited degree. So the accounts that we have dealing with this uh, with this idea, these come from you know far after the the time of, of ancient Babylon. Uh, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, uh, it, it seems to go back to the writings of Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle lived three eighty four through three twenty two BCE, and uh, these a lot of his writings are generally just attributed to three fifty BCE. Uh, so Aristotle brings this up in Problems or Problemata Physica, uh, asking, why is it that the sea, which is heavier than fresh water, is more transparent? Is it because of its fattier composition? Now, oil poured on the surface of water makes it more transparent, and the sea having fat in it is naturally more transparent. Uh-huh. Okay. Several well, things there. <laughs> Um, there's also a part in, I was looking up, up oil in various uh, of these ancient writings, and I noticed in meteorology, uh, Aristotle also points out that oil contains air. So <laughs> there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, mixed information here. Purely speculating here, this could be totally wrong, but I wonder if he's tempted to think that because oil floats on the top of water, mm. therefore like air rises like bubbles through the water. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds likely. All right, I think we're going to come back to Aristotle, but we're going to skip ahead now to uh, to another favorite source on the show, and that is, of course, Roman historian Pliny the Elder, who lived uh, 23 or 24 CE through 79 CE. Um, I have to say, Pliny talks a lot about oils in the natural history. Like, if you just start searching, for, searching up the word oil, um, you're going to find him mentioning all sorts of medicinal oils. Mm. Uh, there's also a section titled Waters Which Serve as a Substitute for Oil Concerning mm. Waters That Emit Light and Heal Wounds. So uh, a lot in there for oil fans to, uh, to, to consume and to, and to try to make sense of. Um, he's in general a big fan of oils, and he busts this out in Book 2, Chapter 106, there's a whole info dump regarding wisdom concerning the water. And he says, everything is soothed by oil and that this is the reason why divers send out small quantities of it from their mouths because it smooths any part which is rough and transmits the light to them. Hmm? 
Okay, so I think this is tying in with what we were talking about earlier with Aristotle as well. And I've seen this particular bit translated as sprinkled from the mouth as well. So I believe the scenario here is that Pliny is sharing something that he has, has heard or, or read um, regarding freedivers carrying some small quantity of oil in their mouths during the dive and spitting it out to make the surrounding water more visible during the dive while they're, you know, looking for something like a mollusk. Hmm. Now, this, the, the quote I read is from the Mayhoff translation um, of, uh, of Pliny, and uh, he notes in the, the notes for this that while this would be proven to be correct, uh, the effect is greatly exaggerated uh, both here and elsewhere. So keep that in mind as we're going here. We're dealing with, you know, second and third hand um, accounts of these things that may have, uh, definitely seem to have a certain basis in fact, but also are greatly exaggerated in the retelling. Okay, well, I imagine we'll return to the mechanics of this, if possible, in the next episode. But do you have any idea how exactly this would work that would make the water more visible? Well, it's my understanding that that what we're dealing with here is that, yeah, the idea is that oil will sort of smooth out the surface of troubled water, but that it will also smooth things out underneath the water. And if you are, you know, free diving, looking for, again, you know, fish or shells or what have you, that some small amount of oil released into that water would make it clearer and easier to see these things and or allow light to filter down uh, more effectively. Um, again, we'll get into the actual science of this probably in the next episode. Uh, and we have to, to keep in mind that, again, we're doing probably what second or third hand information here. I'm guessing here this is, you know, something that Pliny had had heard regarding some uh, freediving people. Uh, and even though he would have certainly been familiar with ships and all, I, I don't remember in reading anything that indicated that he himself would have any uh, firsthand experience with diving underneath the water. Now, another author who gets into some of this is Plutarch, who lived 46 through um, 119 CE. He also references Aristotle in Causes of Natural Phenomena. And according to Heinrich Hunerfus, in Oil Untroubled Waters, a historical survey, this is likely referencing a lost portion of Aristotle's uh, problemata. Hmm. Reads as follows. This is from Plutarch. What is the reason for the clearness and calm produced when the sea is sprinkled with oil? Is it, as Aristotle says, that the wind slipping over the smoothness so caused makes no impression and raises no swell? Or does this plausibly explain the external phenomena only? They say that when divers take oil into their mouths and blow it out in the depths, they get illumination and can see through the water. Surely it is impossible to adduce slipping of the wind in the cause there. Consider then whether the oil does not by reason of its density push and force aside the sea, which is earthy and irregular. Subsequently, when it flows back to its former position and draws together, intermediate passages are left in it which offer transparency and clear visibility to the organs of sight. Oh, that's interesting. So, it, again, I, I wonder if I'm understanding Plutarch right here, but it sounds like maybe he's saying that, um, like, when oil is spit out under the water, it kind of clears channels in the water. I wonder if that would work by, uh, by like, attracting particles in the water that would be making the water cloudy into the oil and then dragging them away with it as the oil rises. Yeah, I'm not sure. I couldn't find much information on this particular detail of hmm. the of the scenario. Maybe I'll find something for uh, for the next episode. But yeah, it's like we'd have to put ourselves in the like in in the um, 
position of an ancient free diver who's, uh, you know, I assume not using any kind of uh, covering for their eyes. Uh, I, I did run across some mentions of these practices where they talked more like they were putting the oil in their eyes, mm. which, again, I don't know how that's factoring into the sort of telephone game of, you know, second, third and fourth hand reporting on this uh, during uh, ancient times, in addition to translation errors. Hmm. All right. But in this, we've touched on this other big area, something that we're going to have a, a lot more to discuss uh, in the next episode as well. And that is, hey, if you dump some quantity of oil and the quantity seems to vary tremendously, uh, if you dump that into a stormy sea, well, that's just going to smooth everything out. Smooth sailing. Thanks to the oil. OK, what, do we have any stories about how this works? We do. We have a pretty good story here, and it, it comes to us from the English monk Bede, who lived uh, somewhere around 672 or 673 through 735. Mm. Often known as the Venerable Bede. It's good if you can get Venerable attached to your name. Yes. So the year here that he's talking about is 651, and King Oswig, sometimes it's um, spelled Oswig, of Northumbria, sends out a priest to bring his bride home from Kent. Uh, and one Bishop Aidan blesses the priest and gives him some holy oil and tells him, when you set sail, you're going to encounter some really stormy uh, weather. There's going to be some high winds. So remember to pour this oil that I'm giving you into the sea, and that's going to calm everything out. Huh. And this is later described as a flask. So I'm assuming we're talking about a magic potion quantity of oil here rather than, say, a barrel of oil. Uh-huh. So Bede claimed that Everything happened as the bishop said it would. When the storms came, the priest poured the flask of holy oil into the sea, and the storm died down. Uh, and Bede insisted that the miracle was no mere fable, uh, that he had heard it from reliable sources close to the matter. Um, so, uh, you know, he was like, this works. This is not a tall tale. This is reality. Also worth noting, by the way, that um, Oswe or, or Oswig was, uh, said, it was said that he and his queen had been gifted multiple holy relics, including a cross with a key to it made from the chains of the apostles Peter and Paul. Okay, well, as much as this does just sound like a standard magical item legend, I think whether or not the story is plausible actually may be more a matter of degree rather than, than just like uh, it could happen or it couldn't. I don't know about using oil to stop a storm, but in the next episode, we're going to end up exploring some surprising uh, grains of truth in, in this kind of legend. Yeah, and you might be surprised, too, at just what kind of legs this idea had concerning the idea that, yeah, you might want to have some oil on hand in case the water gets choppy. So maybe we got to call it there for today, but we'll be back next time to talk about pouring oil on the seas. Yeah, this one, uh, this one was more in-depth than uh, I expected. And uh, you never expect it, but Ben Franklin often does show up. Uh, this is not the first episode where uh, you don't expect Ben Franklin, but here he comes, uh, you know, sauntering up with his weird energy and strange ideas, uh, becoming a part of the story of a particular invention or natural phenomena or what have you. So tune in next time. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, you'll find them on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Those are the core episodes in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Listener mail on Monday. On Wednesday, a short-form artifact or monster effect. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. 
Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, JJ Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.